Hello and welcome to the Fincher Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host Scott Harvey and today we begin a new mini-series on the films of American director David Fincher in the lead up to his latest film, Mank, which will release on Netflix in October. Joining me on our journey into some pretty dark places are my usual co-hosts Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Guys, how's it going? It's going good. Um, trying to decide if I feel more out of my element doing this countdown or the Star Wars countdown. Um, haven't landed anywhere yet, but you know, excited to start another chapter with you guys. Well, how Wait, many have you seen other that, yeah. than this one that we're talking about today? But uh, yeah, he hasn't seen seven. You hadn't seen seven before you watched this. I I had not seen seven before I watched this. No, um, yeah. I had. I've seen I think three of the movies, so I've seen more of it. But you know, the, the, the further we stray from the sci-fi fantasy worlds, you know, perhaps the more out of my comfort zone we're going. So unclear whether a never before seen star wars was more out there than some of these fincher films that i've never seen no I, i'm doing well it's uh i was a little trepidatious to jump into another miniseries right uh, that's also going to be 10 episodes uh right after a 10 episode miniseries but you know then i was watching seven last night and i'm like no nah, these films are good it's fine <laughs> we can watch them all yeah i mean you know that I'm excited in particular about this one, kind of like you were, y'all were about Nolan um, last time. I mean, Fincher is not my absolute favorite, but he's definitely up there for me. And so uh, I am very excited that we're getting to do this so, so soon after Nolan. And I like that this has become a, a new, you know, consistent series for us on, on the podcast. So I look forward to, uh, to revisiting uh, most of these movies, I have not seen uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. That is the only one. Um, and so I, I kind of like the Nolan series. There's one that I ha still have to watch, uh, but otherwise it's just going to be revisiting a lot of films that I love. So, um, yeah, with, without. Well, no, uh, it's funny because so Jay, this is going to be the first time that Jay's seen a movie that neither of us have because I haven't seen Benjamin Button either. So, And you have seen it, Jay? Oh, yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. Wow. Wait, yeah. So he's he's gonna lead the podcast on that one. So <laughs> there you go. It's been my master plan all along. <laughs> yeah. Uh okay. Well, to kick off our Fincher series, as we alluded to, we actually won't be starting with his very first film, 1992's Alien 3. We decided that because it was a sequel in a series where he didn't direct the other films, as well as generally not considered to be indicative of the films that would follow from Fincher, that we would skip over it. So to get things started today, and he's we, fine with that, too. We have to add he's very fine with us skipping yeah. Alien 3. Uh, so to get things started today, we'll be talking about the film that gave Fincher his breakthrough, the 1995 psychological thriller Seven. Set in a nameless city, Seven is a pitch black crime drama starring Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt as detectives Somerset and Mills. As the film opens, the two detectives are on opposite trajectories in their careers. The veteran Somerset is on his way out the door, disgusted with the everyday violence he's had to behold for decades, while the young, idealistic Mills still believes he can be a change for the good. Both men are shaken, however, when they are assigned to the case of a serial killer who has begun patterning his murders after the seven deadly sins. For gluttony, he forces a man to eat himself to death. For pride, he cuts off a model's nose. You get the point. But as Somerset and Mills get closer to unmasking the culprit, they'll both have to take a look at themselves and wonder if this supposedly deranged killer is really so different from either one of them. With a cast that also includes Kevin Spacey, Gwyneth Paltrow, Richard Roundtree, and Arlie Ermey, Seven is certainly an inauspicious launching point for Fincher's career. Before we get to the review, I'd love to hear what both of your first experiences with this film were. Jay, we'll start with you. 
Well, I watched this film about two months ago, actually during the, the thick of the Nolan countdown, um, just because you guys had both recommended it. And uh, you know, I, I rewatched it quickly uh, in uh, leading up to this. And again, you know, I obviously had high expectations going into it, both from my first viewing and from just you know, all the, the buildup you guys had told me about you know, how twisted the movie was. Um, I was excited to rewatch. Scott, how about you? It's been a long time since I've seen this film. I think that's going to be a consistent trend for pretty much every Fincher movie that I have seen, that it's been a while since I've since I've seen it. And so going into it, I was like, you know, that, like this is the I say modern, even though it's now 25 years old, but modern in the grand scheme of like the genre. I think it's like it is like the quintessential modern detective serial killer psychological thriller film. Like I, I just don't I think that that is the standard in which all you know, 2010s or 2000s detective thrillers kind of try to aim for. Um, it, it feels weird for us to say that about a movie that was came out yeah. the year we were born, but I think that it would be considered a modern. I, th I think this and Silence of the Lambs, I think those are the two. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yep, Silence of the Lambs with with a slightly different twist, I think, in Silence of the Lambs yeah. in terms yeah. of the genre it would ultimately fit into probably. But um, yeah, no, I, I think that, yeah, it, it's lofty, it's lofty ambitions or sorry, it's lofty aim. And I think it mostly lands I, it, for me when I first watched it. And so when I came in thinking that, you know, this is a really good film, I haven't seen it a second time. I wonder if it'll have the same effect on a rewatch because, I mean, it's no it's no secret that this film kind of lives. No, I shouldn't say lives and dies, but uh, a lot of the, I guess, pop culture force behind this film is, is its finale, is its ending and how big of a twist it is and, and was viewed at the time and still is today. And so I'd be, I was curious to see how knowing how the movie ended would affect my viewing of it going in, but I had high expectations for sure. Yeah, I think, so this was my third time watching it. I think the first time I watched it was years ago on TV, probably. I think it was probably like one that I watched like in my initial phase of like getting really into movies and just taping a yeah. bunch of stuff off of TV. And I, I could first, I have like what a very the TV specific, cut of this film look like. I'm yeah. So I, I don't know, but I have a specific memory of this being like a very like TNT film, you know, that yeah. probably played on TNT every other weekend. And then I, I watched at some point, but um, I did watch it within the last year um, prior to just rewatching it for this. So um, this was my second watch in the last year. And so I was pretty fresh on it as well. And, yeah, the film, it still has its its potency, I, th I think, was my impression, um, you know, when watching it for that second time. And so I didn't expect really to feel any different so soon afterwards. Um, but with that, I think we can just get right into it, guys. Um, what was your uh, overall general impressions of Seven on this particular watch? Uh, Scott, we'll go to you this time. Yeah, I... I we were uh, we were messaging back and forth while I was kind of watching it for a little bit last night, Scott, and we were having a conversation before I rewatched it. That's like, oh, it's an upsetting film, and I was like, is it as upsetting as I remember? Because I, I mean, I, I remember some of obviously the ending is can, is pretty upsetting and things like that, but I had forgotten some of the details of this film because when I was watching this, I'm like, oh, this is this is a quite upsetting movie. There is just nothing nice about this film whatsoever. It is. Not just gritty, which I think is a, a label that often gets applied to a lot of noir-ish type films. Like, it is a grisly film. Like I'm, I'm not sure that a, a movie this grisly could get made today. Um, at least not by a major student. Maybe an indie house could do it. But I mean, th this film is is tough to watch. I think at times for how how brutally it displays some of these uh, different sins and these kind of almost ritualistic killings that happen. 
in the film and and i think it, it spares its readers some or sorry, readers while wow, spares its viewers some uh some of the gruesome details with you know the finale of the film and you know maybe even some of the grosser stuff that it just leaves to your imagination but the stuff it does show you is is pretty brutal and, and i think that was that's like one of the most striking things about it and i think that in in if some directors were making this or if some more established director, directors were making it you might say they're doing this you know just for the sake of being you know grisly or gruesome in some way but i mean it doesn't feel that way with david fincher i think because it was i mean for all intents and purposes really his his first film where he really had sort of directorial control over it it doesn't feel like you know grisly gruesomeness for just the sake of of uh, being upsetting and i think that it goes towards this overall uh theme of the film that i think i found even more striking the second time that you know you you have like is this part of the conversation that kevin spacey and morgan freeman and brad pitt have in the car while they're driving you know and they're building towards that climax where they talk about how you know in order to get people's attention you have to hit them with a sledgehammer these days and it's so funny to think that this movie gets made in 1995 and if that you know that was what was being said then and and obviously is intended to be speaking to a you know its, it's contemporary audience in the 90s we've grown We've grown so much more uh, in that department, I feel like, in, in 25 years. So I think it, it's funny to see how that quote still lives up today. And, and I think that that was one of the things that really struck me the most on this rewatch is, is picking out the smaller details when I'm not being awed by the, you know, again, like kind of the spectacle of the film, whether it be in the finale, whether it be in these, you know, seven deadly sin murders. Uh, I think that picking out the smaller details, the thematic details, maybe the 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 more of the emotions that you get in the film i think that that's something that that you can't really it's hard, i shouldn't say you can't it's hard to really get in that first watch and so when i watched it a second time i think that the spectacle of the film didn't hit me as hard but i think some of the smaller details going on here some of the things that it's exploring which i think it has some success with and and maybe lacks a little bit in that department um because it thrives so much on its spectacle but i think some of those details hit me a lot harder and, and left me thinking a lot more than i was on the first watch yeah, I think I stayed pretty macro on this watch just because yeah. the some of those details, Scott, that eluded you uh, were still pretty fresh in my mind, you know, as uh, some of those, yeah. you know, more gruesome uh, murder bits were coming up, you know, it was like, it, it's upsetting, like you said, like it, and, you know, I don't get the sense that it, it felt like it was, it was that way just to be, it wasn't, you know, grizzly yeah. just to be grizzly, but, you know, I, I very much, I was very upset the first time I watched this movie, and maybe it was why a little bit more in addition to having seen it recently, it's probably why I passively rewatched it this time because it was more like, I don't really want to engage with you know, that stare. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Engage with that um, as heavily, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was, you know, interesting to compare, you know, some of the themes and some of the, you know, ideas again, you know, remembering that this was 1995 and comparing it to now, um, you know, not, not to go too much into, you know, how uh, things kind of feel today, but this idea of, you know, the world like worth fighting for, like, you know, it's just, just something that, like, you know, that the movie, like, very heavy-handedly, you know, puts in, in your lap at the end. And you're kind of like, you know what, yeah, like, you you very much, like, you you want to feel that way, you know, despite all the division and everything that's happening right now, right? Despite all the chaos and the pandemic and yada, yada. Like, it, it's funny to think that this was, you know, 25 years ago. But, it, like, like you said, you know, a lot of those, like, themes about life, for lack of a better word, you know, are still, like, they, they hate it harder than ever, you know, whether it's about, you know, how to get people's attention or just whether or not the world is worth fighting for. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and yeah, I think I, I echo what both of y'all are saying. This is a point, Scott, that we've talked about, you know, with numerous movies over the past couple of years, it, you know, Joker being one that comes to mind of this idea that, you know, if a movie is going to be this disturbing and upsetting and such and such, there needs to be a point to it, right? Uh, Joker was the example of the movie that just didn't have a point and was also really hard uh, to watch. And this is a movie that, like you all said, this, you know, this is not just violence for the sake of violence. The violence is part of the point, right? It is part of what he is saying. And it, it needs to be this gruesome because it needs to get your attention that, you know, apathy is a huge idea in this movie um, that Morgan Freeman's character in particular is is concerned with. And, you know, he doesn't want you to be apathetic. He want, Fincher, he wants to grab you. And that's why I think he goes to such extremes in certain moments. At the same time, I think we're going to see this with a lot of his films. He has a weird, he has a strange quality of being able to make something really disturbing and dark. And that, yeah, like you all have said, maybe you even want to look away at certain points. But that's also very rewatchable. Like, I think this is a very rewatchable film. I think it's exciting. Um, you know, even when you know what's coming, I think there's still a lot to take away from it. Um, and I think that the same is true of, you know, definitely others of his films that we're going to talk about. I mean, Zodiac, Gone Girl, these are like tough movies, dark movies at times, but I find them very rewatchable. And I don't, I, I don't know if I can put my finger exactly on why, except just that Fincher is such a good filmmaker um, as to why they're so rewatchable. But I think this is an example of one that is. And, you know, it was interesting. I was going back and I watched Siskel and Ebert's review of this from, from when the movie was released. And they were talking about the, the gruesomeness of it. And they were comparing it to the fact that Showgirls, which of course is like the famous Paul Verhoeven like flop film that came out in 95 and was rated NC-17. Uh, like they were both like, this should have been rated NC-17 and not Showgirls. Uh, and this is a conversation that is still had today, of course, about the MPAA and their rating criteria and the fact that they treat, you know, sexual content harder than violence. Um, you know, I was thinking the same thing when I was watching, uh -huh. I was like, I'm really surprised this got away with an R. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, again, I, I, we're not going to get too deep into that debate or anything, but I just thought that that was interesting. And the fact that that is still a, a question mark. And yeah, like, I think I probably would lean towards, you know, the, having this movie on the, the more adult side for sure. I mean, even the stuff that isn't shown on screen, like, you know, the lust killing is not something that is explicitly shown on screen, really. But even the way it is talked about the picture of the thing that the guy makes uh, in the store to to make the killing happen i mean it's it, it's very disturbing um but again there's a point to it so yeah i think i'm curious what the more like more messed up stuff that the guy claims he's made is than, than that i'm i'm a little concerned for that store yeah true um but yeah no i mean i think this is this is a great film i think you know, y'all are hitting on the fact that it still has relevance today. Um, there's so much more on its mind than just who is the killer here. And yes, I agree. If there is a weakness to the film, it's definitely in that last, you know, 20 minutes or so that you have Kevin Spacey just kind of spelling everything out. You know, it, it, it is a little heavy handed. It's kind of, you know, your classic like villain explains his plan before, you know, getting off or whatever. Obviously, you know, that is what happens. But um you know, not not in the way maybe that you might expect, but um, yeah, I, I think that this film still has a lot of uh, potency to it, and uh, I think the performances are great. I think that it's easy to see why this was, you know, a, a big calling card for Fincher at the time because, 
you know, other than Silence of the Lambs, maybe there weren't movies like this being made. And, you know, maybe now even more so there aren't movies like this really being made. And uh, the fact that this sort of adult focused crime thriller could make probably what amounts in today's money to close to $500 million um, is, is crazy. Um, and that's something that I do want to talk about a little bit later in our conversation, but um, I think we can skip or get, can go straight into the cast now uh, talking. So I, I do want to say one thing is that I, I actually don't find the movie to be immensely rewatchable and, and maybe the, and we can talk about this more as, as things go on. Like, like I was saying, I think the, the, the impact of the story, I, I mean, it, once you know what's coming, it, it's not the same. It's not that it's, it, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like, it doesn't land because I, I would actively say the opposite. It still lands. But I think like, I, I'm trying to think of a reason why I'd want to rewatch this movie other than like for this countdown. And I can't think of a reason like, yes, I, I, I found smaller details to think about and some of the themes that you're inevitably going to miss. But I think the film is, I mean, just, I mean, just thinking about what Jay is talking about here. Like, I think the film is, is upsetting enough that like, is it worth rewatching to like get the sm to get some of the smaller details that you may have missed? Like, I personally don't don't find. I I, I guess I would not classify this film as as a film that is highly rewatchable. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's fair. Obviously, again, we've all said that it is disturbing to watch. Yeah. I don't know. It, I I think for me, it's just you know, I like to rewatch really good movies. And I think this is a, this is a really good movie. And even if there are upsetting ideas in it, you know, the, the, cra the filmmaking craft, the uh, performances, all of mm -hmm. that. Uh, and I mean, yeah, like, like you say, Scott, I think the ending still like, you know, sticks a knife in you. Even after you've seen it a few times, I think like yeah. I, I was still, my stomach was still churning a little bit when we got there. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, reasonable minds can differ on whether it's a rewatchable film, but I do think I did want to bring that up because I do think it is something that we will see with other films like Zodiac again, for me is the perfect example of a film that is very, it, it is dark and disturbing, but is one of my favorite movies of all time. And that I've, you know, rewatch time and time again. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. So uh, I think that will be an interesting conversation to have later as well. But uh, talking about the cast of, of Seven, I think obviously there are some, you know, four big names here. You have uh, Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Kevin Spacey. And we were talking a little bit before the stream about how this was kind of uh, an interesting point in all of their careers, right? Like I think Brad Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kevin Spacey were all on the verge of like breaking out, being stars. Um, Brad Pitt would later get nominated for an Oscar this year for 12 Monkeys. Kevin Spacey would win an Oscar later uh, for Usual Suspects, which is also this year. Paltrow was late. You know, she had Emma and Talented Mr. Ripley and a bunch of other movies that would come out um, after this. And Morgan Freeman, right, was kind of the more established guy, but not as a leading actor necessarily. Uh, you know, mainly he he had been known for his supporting roles, like Shawshank Redemption, obviously is a big one. Um, uh, what's the other one? Driving Miss Daisy, he won an Oscar for Best Supporting act Actor. Um, and so he was kind of really the anchor for this film in terms of the, the face that people were most likely to know going into this movie, which is interesting because I don't think that that's necessarily something Morgan Freeman has had to do a lot in his career. But um, regardless, uh, Jay, we'll, we'll go to you first. Of the central, you know, quartet of actors that I mentioned, um, you know, obviously Freeman and Pitt playing the detectives, Kevin Spacey as John Doe and, um, and Gwyneth Paltrow as the wife of Detective Mills. Um, 
who stood out to you? Did, did they all stand out to you? Do you understand why, you know, they went on to become stars based on this movie? Um, you know, were, were there, what, what were the strongest performances out of this bunch to you? I mean, I, th I think it's a tough call. Um, I think I'll give it to Brad. I'll give my uh, few seconds to Brad Pitt. I mean, it was, they, they all look so young, but especially, I mean, like just seeing, you know, this really young and very different looking Brad Pitt was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, forgot that you've been around for a while. Not that, you know, you necessarily look it. And, you know, again, like he, you know, with the exception of like one uh, very awkward line about the, you know, just because this guy reads library books doesn't make him Yoda, which I thought was like a very weird, um, you know, kind of like forced pop culture reference. Like other than that, I, I really do buy into the, you know, kind of just the hothead, like following his emotions. Um, I think the movie, you know, does an adequate job, you know, not only like showing us that, you know, leading up to the finale, I think Brad Pitt, does a good job, uh, you know, like just emulating that, like in a believable way, right? Like, you know, he's the just, you know, a detective, like also trying to do good, but not as, you know, weathered and weary as, you know, his counterpart. And, you know, it, it I, I think he stands out for me, you know, net for that. Yeah, I do love the scene though, where he is in, where they're in the car, and like he's reading reading through the list of books, and like he doesn't know what any of them are, and uh, Morgan Freeman is just like correcting them, and all of them Saint Thomas Aquinas, and all of this stuff. I do think that's a kind of a weird, weirdly funny scene in the movie. But uh, Scott, what about you? Uh, you know, did Brad Pitt stand out to you? Also, other cast members who 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 was a standout to you? Yeah, I will talk about someone else, but to give my two cents on Brad Pitt, like it's like the perfect casting i feel like especially for the time it's like very meta casting like i can totally picture like brad pitt coming on at the set of like seven being like guys i've done like three or four movies now everyone calm down i'm gonna be i'm gonna be awesome in this um like you can picture it because he hadn't had a big film yet but he had done like interview with a vampire the year before and things like that and uh you you could tell i could totally see brad pitt and his character form just coming in and it, and it working perfectly and i think it did uh overall i think you you were saying some interesting points about about Morgan Freeman Scott around how it was it hadn't really been his role to lead a film or anchor a film especially one like this where you kind of have to find this sort of anchor character um, because the villain in the film is off screen for I mean pretty much the entire film until like the last you know twenty twenty five minutes of the movie so even if the villain is what's like hooking you into the film like you have to find some some point to anchor you down that you actually see and you can you can relate to on screen and Morgan Freeman does that really well I think this is a fantastic performance for him I think the gravitas that he brings I mean yeah he's like 60 years old when he's making this film but the I I, I think that is um it, it, it's really felt like it, it feels like he's led a lot of movies and anchored a lot of movies even if this you know was his first time that it was a big film I and mean, I'm sure he'd been the lead in a movie before but um like the fact that he was anchoring such a such a pivotal role in in a movie that went on to do so well, I think it it really speaks volumes to his performance in particular because Brad Pitt's a, you know this guy who's like bouncing off the walls almost as he as he comes in and and it's not a character that you can you could rely on to anchor a film in that sense and I think that not only is Freeman's performance so good and, and really does that for the audience I think it also it marries well with Pitt's performance because they I mean they really are kind of almost the stereotypical foils for each other that, you know, the young hot-headed versus the old wise, um, you know, uh, de detective here to, to, you know, and they learn from each other in, in their own ways or whatever. It, it's very stereotypical, but I think it, it works for the same reason that maybe it's a stereotype, right? It, it, they play really well together. They interact really well together and they, and it, and it works. It just works kind of for me, hands down. I will say it is really weird to think that Gwyneth Paltrow is like 
21 when they're making this film. She's so young in this in this movie. It was really weird to to see her there. I mean, she's not. I, I always just forget that that she is only like 45 or 46 or whatever uh, right now. So when re- rewind to 1995 and seven and Shakespeare in Love a few years after that, like she's so young. Yeah, I, I mean, I I agree. I think Morgan Freeman is fantastic in this movie. I, I it might be honestly his best performance, and it is a shame, you know, talking about that he doesn't necessarily get to lead movies that often, um, which is crazy to think about, honestly, because he is such a known actor. Like, he's one of the most famous actors out there. You know, he's been nominated for a lot of awards. He is just kind of a omnipresent figure in, in movies. But we don't, he, you we don't need to get into a race discussion, but I think we can all guess why he didn't lead that many movies. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think that is a fair point to bring up, um, yeah. even, even nowadays, why he doesn't lead uh, movies. Well, but it is he's 90 years old now. Yeah. Well... Is he really that old now? He's like 87, yeah. Yeah. And and that's another thing to create crazy thing to think about with him, right? Is that he didn't become famous until like he was the in 80s. his 40s. Yeah. Um like he was Street Smart, which was like 1986, that was his first Oscar nomination. Like yeah, he was in his 40s. Um he he really came to it late, but he's so good here and yeah, it's an understated performance, but I think he has that great like a world-weary quality about him. Like he he is the world has made him weary and he is also weary because of the world, I think is part of this movie. Um, and, and that's, I think it, he brings a really interesting dimension to that. And in particular, I mean, I'll go ahead and spoil my favorite scene is the scene with him and Gwyneth Paltrow in the diner. And he's talking about how he, you know, had an opportunity to have a, a kid and um, you know, he, he basically told his partner or wife, whoever at the time to, you know, get rid of the child because he didn't want it. And, you know, talking about his regrets. I mean, that is like the center of the movie right there. That explains so much about who he is, I think, and who um, and his relationship with Brad Pitt's character and why he sort of takes to this guy and and what he wants for this guy, even though they're very different. Um, I think it's I think he's he's great. I mean, he really does like even though it's an understated performance, I think he really does hit some great emotional beats in that scene. So I I think he's fantastic. And um, I think that Gwyneth Paltrow is also good in her limited screen time here. I think like the thing about her, which struck me is like, and this is obviously a very intentional decision, but she is like luminous in this movie. Like she like lights up the screen when she is on the screen. And I think that's, again, that's by design because Fincher wants her to be like, he, she is like the hope. She is the, the like only light in this movie. The only source of hope is um, this character and, her love for Brad Pitt and the fact that, you know, she's having a child and, you know, the sort of, again, how that dovetails with Morgan Freeman's own trajectory. Um, And that's what I think makes the ending, right? Such a, you know, stomach churning moment is because of the way that she has been set up is like, here is the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel is this character. And uh, now she's gone at the end of the movie. Um, so I think she does a really good job of portraying that in her her limited screen time. And then as far as Kevin Spacey goes, <laughs> haven't brought him up necessarily, maybe for obvious reasons, but um, I think he he gives a good performance here. Uh, I think that uh, he he is set up in an interesting way um, because he is, you know, he comes in later in the movie, right? And you you have certain expectations about this character based on the killings that you've seen based on the way they talk about it, right? Like this is the, the argument sort of that, that Somerset and Mills are having of like, is this guy a lunatic or is he, you know, just, you know, an, another person with, uh, you know, like Morgan Freeman is talking about. Who, of grandeur. Yeah. Um, 
uh, and, you know, he's he's actually very, you know, intelligent and organized in the way that he is setting up everything. And I do want to talk some more about that, especially in relation to a film in our last series, um, The Dark Knight. But um, I think that, you know, he he does a good job of like subverting your expectations, maybe of, of coming into the movie when he comes in so late, because he is you know, a lot more normal than you would expect, right? Like when he, that scene in, in the back of the car, as much as I, I don't think it's that great, but what gets to Brad Pitt, right, is that he is just so, um, you know, even handed about the way that he's talking about what he's doing. And he's not like a ranting, raving maniac necessarily. Like he has a very thought out plan. He has like his own moral code that he is following, uh, you know, agree or disagree with it, whatever. But um, I think that he is subverting Brad Pitt's expectations, maybe in the way that he's subverting the audience's expectations, right? Talking about Silence of the Lambs, again, another really big serial killer movie that came out in this era. That's not really Hannibal Lecter, right? Like Hannibal Lecter is like the scenery chewing, like, you know, he has a screw loose villain. And I think that John Doe is a little bit different from that, even though obviously what he's doing is crazy. Um, you know, he has his reasons and um, he's not just killing for the sake of killing. And so I think Spacey does a good job of portraying this kind of detached guy who maybe is a little more grounded than we would expect from this villain. But um, talking, I, I don't think we need to spend too much time on this because, you know, there's not like it's not a huge standout of the movie, maybe like it is with a Nolan film, but technical aspects of the movie. And in particular, I think that the score by Howard Shore is really a standout here. Um this sort of like, uh, you know, sort of operatic orchestral at times uh, score is, I think, pretty effective. Um, any other technical aspects, visuals, uh, you know, sound design, anything like that that you want to hit on, Scott? I'll, I'll go to you. Yeah, I mean, the score is just the one thing that I probably would have wanted to bring up because it's fantastic. And I forgot that Howard Shore did anything that wasn't Lord of the Rings. I mean, honestly, um, yeah. he's so now just well known for for that. I mean, for the incredible work that he did on that franchise. But uh, no, it, this is a fantastic score. It gets the mood perfectly right. As for other aspects of the film, like visually, like you said, it's a nameless city. I think it's pretty clear that it's New York City. And boy, man, Jay, you'll have to speak to this. Does it rain that hard that much in New York City for the span of a week? This was going to be my one uh, gripe <laughs> with the technical aspect is that it's raining. It's pouring all the time in this yeah. in this again like ambiguous serial killer movie yeah. has to be yeah. a lot. <laughs> i think maybe it, uh, right or, i think he is maybe trying a little too hard there for like to capture this aesthetic by having it rain all the time and he probably doesn't necessarily need that but that's an interesting point to bring up yeah i mean just what a what a bleak film for new york city i mean you don't see anything nice about it at all i, I know that people had bad bad stereotypes of new york city back in the 90s before crime reform happened or whatever but like, like every apartment building has got completely run down. Like it's raining constantly on the street. Apparently people are, are knifing each other in the middle of the street. And it feels like it's Gotham basically. <laughs> but uh, speaking of the dark Knight comparison, but no, over, overall, I think one thing that I appreciated from, from a film like this, and I was thinking, yeah, I mean, it's in inevitable that I would compare it to some early Nolan films just based on the series that we just did, but thinking about something like an insomnia, um, and the action scenes that were in, in Insomnia, I think that un unlike the nauseating action sequences in Insomnia for me, I actually thought like the one big action set piece here where they're running through this apartment building and down a fire escape in the streets. Like, I think this is shot like extremely well for someone who hadn't really done it 
done a see i mean i actually have no idea what he did in alien 3 there probably was some action scenes in alien 3 but i think it's like a really well done scene especially for you know you got one shot at this in the scene or one shot at this in the film right we're gonna have one big set piece like this and i think it works really well and uh, it doesn't overstay its welcome maybe just a little bit too long at, at the end but overall it was really good jay how about you anything else you want to say about the technical aspects other than the rain uh, well, I mean, that was my big one, but now yeah. no, Scott brought it up. I actually didn't really like uh, the big action scene. I thought, yeah. um, like, and I know, I know a lot of this film is shot like kind of dark, like very intentionally, of course. But like, in, in addition to like some of that, like, I guess one thing for me is that like when these types of scenes are happening, it, it should be a little bit clearer. I think where everyone kind of is in relation to everyone else, and maybe again, this was like an intentional choice. It's meant to be like disorienting or whatnot but because you know like i don't really know where morgan freeman is in relation to the other two when he's like running down the stairs and whatnot like you know i i find that like just a little bit distracting i guess um and and, and i'll agree with the point about maybe it's touched on a little bit too long again like i i do think you know like i i guess i see what it was going for i just wasn't a huge fan of it yeah i think yeah right i think it is going for that disorienting feel because right because of how it ends up with you know, John Doe, like pointing the gun at, at Brad Pitt. I think it, it wants you to like be really shocked and like taken aback at that moment because maybe you have, um, you know, a trouble getting the context of where everyone is, you know, when you're watching the chase sequence. So it's, I think it's effective, but I understand why uh, maybe, you know, you, you wouldn't take to it. But um, yeah, no, I, I, that sequence slipped my mind a little bit. So I'm glad that you brought it up because uh, yeah, like you said, it is like sort of the one, action sequence here but i think it's it's pretty well done and uh I, having studied criminal procedure a lot recently for the bar exam i find uh, what they do funny about like how they basically decide that they can go into the apartment because they like you know act like the he left the door open or whatever and so, so that they can actually like go in without needing a warrant and all this stuff i think is uh is is kind of funny to watch but is that how they do that i thought they just had I thought, I mean, Brad Pitt just breaks down the door and then pays someone to lie to the police. Yeah. 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 Is that, not, uh, yeah. Sorry, did I say something that was inconsistent with that? You said that he left the door open. Well, he breaks it down. I mean, yeah. Well, sorry, I, I misspoke there, but yeah. Oh. Um, but yeah, th- my, my point is they, they sort of invent this way to like go in and search the apartment without uh, needing a warrant, which I think is is uh I, I liked watching that and i liked like how they come back after the chase or whatever and morgan freeman is like oh no we still can't go in there uh you know that's kind of the again the clash between the the old guard and the new guy um is is interesting to see play out but um talking more about the plot now to get into some more specific you know details and ideas that are going on here and let's start by talking about this somerset character and his sort of view of society and um Again, he he's he's very concerned with the apathy of of people. Like he is still constantly disgusted by the violence that he you know has had to see in his line of work for so long, and that is sort of what is driving him into retirement, right? Like the the idea that he just can't do it anymore because no one cares, no one is motivated enough to go out and try to actually make a change. Um, they just kind of are complacent with, hey, this is reality. There's always going to be this crime. Uh, just have to accept it, and you know hope I'm not involved in some way. Um, and I think that he starts to see some, you know, parallels maybe between himself and the, the John Doe character a little bit, um, which, which is interesting. But um, what, what do you guys think about this theme of the movie and the relationship between uh, Somerset 
and Mills, but also, you know, the way that Somerset views himself, maybe in relation to, to John Doe. Jay, starting with you. I mean, it's it's still just bleak, right? Like, and and that's like that's primarily where my mind goes when I think about this. And you know, it it it's sad to see. And again, like you know, not not trying to like be overly like morbid about you know the state of anything, but you know, when you see someone so like weak and uh, you know weary from like you know general like again like in, in this case it's apathy. You know, in present day, it's maybe whether or not people think you know the the global health issue is like a hoax or a big deal or whatnot. Like, you know, you have this sense of like, this is kind of where like all roads lead, you know, when, you know, you have, uh, again, just, you know, the, the, the apathy, right. The, the fact that people don't care. And, you know, when you see, you know, him next to someone like Brad Pitt, like, you know, again, like, you know, you, I, I really like you know, Brad Pitt's character in this movie, you know, and I, I like the, you know, the hot headedness and like the, you know, like I'm, you know, trying to make a difference here, but when, when you have Morgan Freeman next to him, like to me, it, it, it very much is just like, Oh, you poor kid. Like you, you, you really don't know like where this is going. And you know, that, that provides, that makes not only like a bleak outlook for like this movie, but just like, you know, feels kind of bleak again, like about life. Um, I, I hate that I keep using that word to describe it, but like, again, like, you know, the, the parallels are there and you know, it's, it's, it's upsetting. I don't know if you feel differently. Yeah, I, I guess I don't get as much of the internal monologue of comparison between the two characters. I mean, I think you can certainly see the similarities on screen and, and maybe how they view that. Maybe, maybe I'm, I just missed it in the film and that, or haven't thought about it very much. But yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I get, I, I definitely see the comparison and I, I think it's, I mean, you could say that they're opposite sides of the same coin, I guess, in, in that sense. Like they have this outlook on the world and Morgan Freeman is choosing to do one thing about it and John Doe is choosing to do a different thing about it. And I, I, may, I mean, I guess I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, Scott. Maybe I'll react to them better from there, but it's just not something that I thought about too much. Yeah, well, I think mainly what I'm thinking about, well, number one, they're both sort of very methodical and organized. Again, going back to what I was talking about in that last scene, right? Like that, I think, is an example of Morgan Freeman, the way he approaches his police work is, hey, we have to get a search warrant. You know, we have to go through all the proper channels, blah, 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 blah. We have to do all of this. Um, and that's probably the way he's been, you know, performing his duties for however long he's been on the police force. Um, and, you know, in the same way, right? Like, I think that's why he understands from the beginning, right, that John Doe is, hey, he's maybe he's not that that crazy. He is actually very organized. He's very methodical, you know, about the way that he's going about things. I don't think there can be any denying that he's you know he has all of the killings planned out very well um even you know through to the very end when they think that oh he's he's made a mistake he slipped up he's given himself away he still has two killings left and you know he's two steps ahead of them but um so i think there's there's that element and then yeah just their their world view of like they're both tired of the world in some sense they're both tired of violence right like which which is crazy to sound to say coming from the john doe character but like i think he is right like i think that is kind of his moral code is he has like this very sort of puritanical view of like hey like prostitutes and all this stuff are you know they're they're dirty they're sinning like these people who are overweight are eating too much like uh businessmen uh such and such are you know they're all just sort of uh, taking advantage of society, their you know greed again, uh, vanity being the the issue with the the pride killing. I think that he has this sort of very puritanical worldview, which is maybe in some sense mirrored by um, 
Morgan Freeman's, you know, being so upset with the violence that he uh, sees around him. And, and again, the apathy. And I think that's just where the interesting tension between uh, it, within Somerset's character comes from in the movie is the fact that, yes, they're they're going about their worldview in very different ways. But there's this idea like that Somerset maybe is afraid that, hey, I'm only a step away. I'm, I'm two steps away from becoming this guy, potentially. And I think that's why the end of the movie is so interesting, right? Because you see sort of Mills is the one who kind of, um, you know, goes down the dark path, right? Like he he lets John Doe win in a way by, uh, you know, choosing to, to kill him. And so I think all of that dynamic is really interesting. But yeah, I, I'm I'm with you until the last part of what you're saying there, where where I don't I don't personally get the impression that Morgan Freeman is afraid he's going to like he's only one or two steps away from becoming John Doe. But I mean, again, this isn't something that I was thinking about, and maybe on a rewatch, thinking about it more, I'd, I'd see that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's not necessarily himself, but maybe it's you know making sure that Mills doesn't become this guy because he you know he's he's young and he still has the light in his eyes uh you know so to speak oh, not anymore <laughs> not anymore right not at the end of the movie but um and, and obviously like i said i think gwyneth paltrow's character is a part of that but um maybe you know stopping him from yeah. going down the dark path maybe he's like hey i'm already down this path i'm never going to be i'm never going to become this guy but um I have more in common with this guy than I'd probably like to admit. Um, so I, I think that all is very interesting. But uh, talking about John Doe, then, uh, you know, we, we've talked about him a little bit here and sort of his his plan, his, you know, moral code and all of this stuff. I, I do want to compare it to the Joker in The Dark Knight, because this isn't a, an idea that I ever really had, you know, before watching it this time, probably because we had watched The Dark Knight so recently is why I was thinking about it a lot. But there is, I think, some interesting uh, parallels between the characters. Again, they have sort of uh, this like chaotic mentality about them, but also they're, they, the thing that stuck out to me the most is maybe the fact that we talked about with the Joker, how he knew exactly how to push the buttons of the people that, uh, of Batman in particular, right? He knew exactly what uh, Batman, you know, the most difficult position to put him in, which was forcing him to like try and kill someone and kill him specifically. Um, and I think that John Doe has a similar thing. Like the, the reason he is such like an agent of, of chaos is because yeah, he has his reasons for, for what he's doing, but he knows how to, to get under their skin. Right. First of all, by being this like sort of normal methodical, like, you know, dude who, you know, ha ha again, has a lot in common with, uh, with Somerset. Um, but also just by, you know, playing on their their views of society and and the, the gruesomeness of violence and trying to just cap captivate their um, attention with, uh, you know, his, his killings. I don't know. I, I just felt like there were some interesting parallels between the characters. And I, I would be interested to hear what you guys think, Scott. Yeah. So, no, when I saw that you put this on, on the rundown, it got me thinking because I think that there certainly are some good comparison points i it, it's like these and, and i think that in in some ways if you like put these two villains like on the on the screen together I, I think that you they would like simultaneously like really appreciate certain things about each other but then like i think they just have opposite sensibilities like i actually completely disagree with what you're saying about john doe being an agent of chaos i think he's like the opposite of that he's like he's like this very measured agent of like i'm doing these things for this purpose and joker does 
these things for no reason whatsoever other than just stir the pot. Yeah, but he is but he is subverting everyone's expectations of him, I think. And that is what is chaotic about him, right? Is that maybe they're not used to seeing a serial killer who uh, is so methodical, but also so gruesome at the same time, right? Like, I think that it's the combination of those two things, which is what creates the chaos. He, he himself is not, maybe not uh, like, you know, he, he has chaos in mind or anything. Like, again, he does have a very set plan. Um, but I think that it's our expectations of him as a character and um, what we expect when we see him and because of how he's carried out his plan, maybe that uh, can create some chaos and obviously does create chaos at the end. Yeah, I think it creates chaos at the end. Yeah, I, I guess I guess we're just going to disagree on this point. I, I don't think that I don't see the chaos that you're talking about um, in in John Doe. But I think one of the things that I was actually saying for my in my letterbox review about this film is that I think that like Joker, like the Joker from from the Dark Knight would like really appreciate what John Doe is doing. And maybe that's like for the reasons that you're describing here, because he sees like all, all like this film, right? Like it, it, it happens at a pretty brisk pace for like most of the movie. And then it, it like slows down to a crawl at the end of the film. Like the last like 30 to 40 minutes of the film only happen over the course of a few hours. And the rest of the movie is like a week or so b before that. And you know, you get this scene in The Dark Knight where Joker's talking about how he likes to savor the little emotions. That's why he uses a knife and things like that. And I think this film is like the, and, and what John Doe is doing is like savoring those little emotions right there at the end in the finale. And I think this is the finale that you're talking about here where he really like breaks down and and causes, you know, this moment of chaos in the world of, maybe in the world of Brad Pitt or this, this moment of just like pure, I don't know, like red mist descending sort of like delusional, um, rage at the end of the film and, and gets a, you know, gets a reaction out of these two, you know, out of this particular character. And in, in some respects, Morgan Freeman as well. But I, I think that you know, the Joker would like really appreciate the fact that he's able to do that. And he doesn't like pull punches at all. He doesn't rush anything. He like drags out of him and essentially like verbally tortures him with it towards the end of the film and taunts him at, at the end to get the desired results uh, out of him, which is of course for, you know, Brad Pitt's character to kill John Doe. And I think that that is something that I guess I can, I can start to see some of the similarities that you're describing. But whereas I think like Joker is trying to like get this sort of like grand, you know, chaos to, to, it's like the opposite. I, I think Joker's trying to cause chaos to get a reaction out of people. And I think John Doe is getting, is like doing a very, is like trying to do something very specific to target a very specific person to get a reaction out of them for that thing. And, and so I think that there is there is a lot of similarities or a lot of comparison points to make, but it, it feels like to me that like sensibilities are almost the opposite. Like, like John Doe is preaching, like they talked about this, other like he's preaching mm -hmm. a specific message. Joker's message, he doesn't have a message. The whole point of the Joker is that he's not saying anything other than just to cause chaos. And so I, I think in that sense, John Doe would like really not like the Joker, but the Joker would be like, I, I like what you're doing here, bud. Yeah, but I think he does. I mean, I think, yes, the Joker, he is agent of chaos, but I also think his plan, right, is to turn people against each other. Um, and I think like that is the whole, you know, prisoners versus civilians setup at the end of the movie. And that's the one moment where we see him get really rattled, like we talked about with The Dark Knight, is when the people unite and, uh, you know, and say, hey, we're not going to destroy the other the other group of people. And he's really taken aback by that because that's not what he expects. And here, right, like I think it, I think it's a similar sort of thing at the end of the movie, right, like that he wants Brad Pitt to become 
you know, this, he wants him to become wrath, right? The, the final deadly sin to be, to realize that, Hey, he, you know, it, it, this is all it takes to make someone kill. I can, I can manipulate you. Um, you know, you have this view of me that I'm so despicable, but I can, I can make you kill, um, pretty easily. Um, and you know, obviously his vision is actually realized, but Jay, what are your thoughts on this? I think I'm a little bit closer to Scott Shelton and how I feel about this. I, yeah, I don't necessarily see the agent of chaos comparison. Um, at least when I think about like the first four or five sins, uh, again, just because of how like methodical planned out, very specific, you know, in the case of one of them, like, you know, it, it was planned over like, you know, to like land on a one year anniversary, right? Like there's that. I think when you think about the, like, I am like, and you said it, you know, in relation to like the last two, um, I'll even take a step back and think about like the, the planning of those two. I think that is where I guess it becomes a little more chaotic because I, I, unless I missed something, I don't think there's any way he realistically could have planned the last two to, to play out the way they did until very recently up to the last, uh, like until, until like very recently. Whereas the others, you know, again, like after boom. everything had started, right. Yeah. Cause like he didn't even know who Mills was until they had the interaction on the stairs. Right. Like when outside he's the of the photographer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, there, there was, I guess, theoretically some plan uh, involving the last two sins that I guess maybe was scrapped in favor of like, Oh, like, you know, like look how much more like exciting or, you know, sledgehammery, I guess, you know, this, this will be if when I pull this off, um, and, it, you know, it, it does seem like he does kind of, in my mind, like almost stray even a little bit by killing Gwyneth Paltrow's character because she wasn't actually a sinner, uh, you know, compared to you know, the, the people who had died previously. Um, so, you know, in that way, like, you know, it's like, oh, like you know, it, it does feel like it's about, you know, more getting the chaotic ending than actually sticking to maybe what the first five sins were about. Um, but but like you said, Scott Shelton, you know, like this is this is so planned and methodical and like intentional that you know i you know i i I wouldn't necessarily call him an agent of order but he's certainly much more you know like you know everything has a point yeah so but so i am interested to talk about because i do think it gets muddled a little bit the fact that he kills gwyneth paltrow and that is the envy killing i don't know i i feel like that is not exactly clear why that is is the envy killing do do you guys have any clearer sense of that i mean is it that he envies mills mills's wife or something like because that's that would seem to be again that would seem to be subverting sort of the plan that he's had so far which maybe is the idea but well so it's that he envies mills and his normal life right like he went and like tried to play husband like he said and he just it's it's i think he said that he envied his normal life and that's why envy is his sin but that you're right in that like it, it kind of subverts the the initial five because it's his the sin someone else. Yeah. exactly yeah. It, to, to me, I think you can also you can almost read it another way where like the murder of Gwyneth Paltrow's character here isn't is it Tracy? Is that her name? Mm-hmm. Um, she like she is not, in fact, one of the murders. It's like really, if you think about it, what happens here is that like Kevin Spacey's character is the sixth murder, which is the envy killing. Yeah. And then whatever happens to Brad Pitt is it's the seventh. Yeah. That's wrath. But it, again, it gets a little muddied at the end. I think this is it, it, you're it, like the shock value of the ending almost makes you not worry about how everything's coming together. But I, I do think it, it is a very valid point and something that I was thinking about last night. I hadn't thought about it before, to be honest, but on the rewatch thought about it. And uh, I don't know if it muddies. I mean, it muddies the water for, for sure. And I think it, it just speaks to Jay, the really good point that you were making about how 
it really feels like when they arrive at his doorstep, right? And that happens. Like he has, like he, he even says it on the phone, like he has to change. He has to move a lot of his plans forward, right? And he has to scrap a lot of things. And uh, a lot of what he's planning probably, at least for six, like the sixth and the seventh sermons or whatever he wants to call them, uh, is going to have to change up a lot. And it, and it certainly <laughs> simultaneously rushes things, but also bring, you know, that's when the movie like stretches out the time a lot more and has this has this big buildup. But it's it's an interesting point because maybe things are not as 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 planned and regimented as John Doe is. You know, this is a point where his very ordered plans had to be switched up a little bit. And you know, I don't know how he's thinking about it, right? But does he end up even getting a seventh? You know, a seventh murder. I mean, certainly seven people die, right? But have seven sins you know, been atoned for. Yeah. And I think talking about the sort of the, the duality of Mills and John Doe and the way that Mills, you know, gives into his sins at the end. Like, I think right. it does. I think it does make sense that look, he, you know, for the first five killings, he's like, Hey, here's the victims. Here's what they've done. These are, you know, their sins, according to my worldview. Now for the sixth killing, right. You're going to see how my sin of envy has led me to kill and then right after that, right, you're going to see that, hey, your sin of wrath is going to lead you to kill, too. Like there's this sort of like direct comparison right there in the end of, uh, hey, maybe we're sinning in different ways or whatever, but they're both leading us down this path to kill. And so you're more like me than you want to admit. And so I think it makes sense that we have to confront what John Doe's sin is and what it forces him to do maybe um, before we get this final moment with Brad Pitt of giving into wrath. Um, but yeah, yeah, things do, I don't, I don't want to say things come apart, but things certainly shift, um, the perspective, right? Exactly what you guys are saying with those last two murders, because I mean, like, I guess you could make an argument that what is it's like John Doe is not killing anyone except for Gwyneth Paltrow, right? Like it's, it's the sin that has killed these people. Mm -hmm. It's the sin of gluttony. He wouldn't stop. Like he didn't stop. I mean, yeah, like Kevin Spade, John Doe's there like pointing the gun and said, forcing him to continue to eat. But like, it's the sin of over, of overeating that killed you. It's the sin of greed, cutting off your own flesh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the sin of, of right. Like your vanity, right. That you just couldn't, you couldn't call the police to help you. You could have, you could have lived even disfigured. Uh, It's, it's all these sins that, that are killing you. And you get that, right? Like this, like if you turn the perspective back to what I was talking about here, like the sin of envy is what is what inspires the wrath of Brad Pitt and kills Kevin Spacey. But then you don't really get the seven. Like we don't know what happens to Brad Pitt there. And Gwyneth Paltrow certainly doesn't fit in to that mold. So you, you have to spin it to get the seven out of it. And, you know, maybe it's worth maybe it's supposed you maybe you're supposed to think about it both ways. Right. Because certainly like Brad Pitt, it's clear at the end of the film like he's going to have to atone for that sin of wrath, right? like he's probably going to go to jail. I mean, who knows, right? Like, actually, that's an interesting question. Like, do you guys think that he's actually going to go to jail for doing that? Like, probably not, right? <laughs> well, he, so, might, he might not go back to the police force. Like, he might get fired. But, like, is he really going to go to jail for that? Yeah, no, I, I don't know about, like, policeman's privilege or whatever. But this is, like, if we're talking strictly about the law, I'm going to be annoying here. But, like, this, this would be like a manslaughter, right? Because he's in the heat of passion after having yeah. seen his wife you know, killed right there. So that would be like an excuse. He, he would be excused from murder for that. It would be a voluntary manslaughter. I think yeah, if, okay, if he's prosecuted again, I think there's like ideas of like police privilege. No, pol- honestly, knowing police. No department, way that this guy in reality gets prosecuted. Yeah. For and knowing police department, they would cover. 
this up. Like, I, I'm not even covering it up. There's no, there's no way that anyone would be like, yeah, you know, he's got to go to jail for killing the serial killer. I think yeah. the implication is that he's going to go to jail and he's basically like ruined his life, right? Regardless of what in practicality would happen. So <laughs> let's stay there. Yeah, yeah. Even whether he goes to jail right or, the, the or not, right? Like, I think his life is ruined because like his hope is gone. Yeah, that's, that's his, the key, right? His wife and kid are, are dead. Um, and, you know, he is now seeing this darkness inside of him as well. But um, I guess we've talked a lot about the ending, but, you know, one final thing maybe to talk about with the plot is something that we have hinted at, and I think we're all kind of on the same wavelength here, but the gruesomeness of it and, you know, the violence being the, the gruesomeness of it being the point, maybe, the, that he wants you to be really arrested by um, what you're seeing, like, do you think that is true? Like, do you think that uh, there is a point to being so grisly? And if so, like, what is it, Scott? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not sure he reaches some sort of grand meeting, a grand meaning out of his out of his ups. You know, the degree of of some of the upsettingness of that. None of those are words. The degree of of gruesomeness that that is you know that is shown on screen. But it certainly speaks to this message of like. I don't know, like escalating apathy towards things, right? Like if you're so apathetic about these things, look at this. Are you still apathetic? And I think that there is a point. There is a there is some point to it. Like, I, again, I don't know if they're reaching it's reaching some sort of like grand meaning, but it's certainly not like I said at the beginning, it's not being upsetting for the sake of being upsetting. Jay, do you agree? Yeah, uh, I won't I won't belabor this point. But yeah, I, I also don't think it reaches some grand meaning, but I also don't think it. uh you know, it's, it's just trying to be gruesome for the sake of being gruesome. I think it, you know, is very much a part, like a very important part of the story. Yeah, no, I, I think that this is the classic example of why a film like Joker fails, because it's not saying anything in the midst of all of its, uh, you know, disturbing content, whereas this film obviously is. And I, I think there is like a an aspect of, hey, he wants you as the viewer to be like, you know, so... Uh, disgusted with what you're watching too i mean it's, it's strange that a filmmaker wants you to be disgusted at his own film but i think that is what he's going right because he's like hey here's what apathy can do um you know d don't ever don't be apathetic like no, no matter how perpetual crime becomes in our society whatever um don't become apathetic because um it can lead to cycles of of violence uh happening and you know regardless of whether you think John Doe had it coming, I, I don't think that Fincher wants us to think that uh, this is a good result, right? That that Brad Pitt kills him in the end. I, I don't think that that's what he wants. So I think he definitely wants to inspire a lot of strong emotions in us as the audience. And I think he succeeds in doing that for sure. Jay, you uh, look like you were going to say something. Oh, just I, I was just uh, going to question the use of the word fail in relation to the Joker movie. I, I mean, I, I know we didn't like it, um, I don't know if the movie necessarily it, failed, but it failed. It failed. Okay, sure. <laughs> Not at the box office, but in all other aspects, uh, it wasn't saying anything, or it thought it was, but it wasn't. I agree with you. I just I don't I don't know if the general public sees it that way. Whatever, it's fine. I, did, I didn't realize the, the Fincher countdown was going to just be a dunk fest on Joker. Apparently, <laughs> Scott's oh, obsessed yeah. with the Joker, even though he'll tell you otherwise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. That's you why won't stop I, talking uh, about it on the podcast. That's why I. Uh, asterisk out the O whenever I tweet about it. But um, anyway, I think the last interesting point maybe to touch on is uh, we talked about it a little bit, but could this film get made and be as successful as it was today? Because 
this movie uh, made $320 million at, uh, worldwide at the time in 1995 on a $33 million budget. So obviously it was a massive, massive box office success. Like Fincher arguably like got a blank check off of this one movie. Um, but, uh, you know, Scott and I were talking about this a little last night uh, of, you know, do, do we think that this movie would be, I mean, I think the movie could get made, right? Like I think there are, filmmakers out there apart from Fincher who, you know, are, are interested in the, the sort of things that he's saying here and the types of films that he makes. But, uh, you know, would it be as successful today? Because we just don't see original films doing these types of numbers unless it's like Christopher Nolan, right? Like, I think that he is, or, you know, like Tarantino, but even he, like, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was his biggest success. And that was what, 150 million, maybe? Um, in Hollywood? No, it may yeah. have been that. Did it? Okay. Well, that, but it was his biggest success, and I think it still doesn't necessarily compare to um, to Seven. But um, Jay, what, what yeah, do you? Yeah, think? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood made four hundred million dollars. Okay, but yeah, I, again, I think even adjusted. Um, yeah, fi- five hundred forty million adjusted for twenty twenty. And it took Tarantino, you know, however long to get there, right? Like he, making some of the most acclaimed films of the modern era with Pulp Fiction, you know, uh, Kill Bill and Glorious Bastards, and these movies weren't the ones doing it. But Jay, what do you think? Could, could this movie be successful today? If so, what would it take? Like, would it take a certain director? Would it take certain stars? Word of mouth? I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to think so. I'm not sure why I'd like to think so, but I'd like to think so. I don't think the violence would necessarily be a problem. Um, even for like, you know, today's moviegoer, I do think, and maybe this is just my own, uh, jaded experience with uh, spoiler culture, but I feel like, you know, with like social media and Twitter and people who like to post those memes of like candy bars and then giant movie spoilers in the bottom right corner, you know, you, you obviously run the risk of, uh, you know, the Jay's movie. not speaking about a specific experience. This happened with both Batman v Superman and Logan. That's all I'm, I'm going to say on that matter. But um, yeah, it, uh, yeah, I think with spoiler culture, you know, obviously you, you might lose a little bit of the effect of like, oh, like go see this movie, um, you know, with, with the existence of like online trolls and whatnot. But I, I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, an original movie like this, you know, as long as, you know, it, I mean, you know, the, these actors hadn't com- really broken out, like we said, right? Like, you know, they, they were very much on the verge of it. Um, but the movie itself was like great. The cast itself was like great. And, I, you know, I'd like to think it, you know, something like this could still succeed, even if, you know, the violence wouldn't necessarily, Scott, like you said, you know, be something that like a big studio would like, like, like like not a big studio wouldn't necessarily pick up and like have this film made the way it was. Yeah. I mean, this, this film was made by new line in 1995. Like I I think that was probably before they were owned by Warner. Actually not sure when new line was acquired by Warner brothers. I think it was like right after. So technically this like, wasn't a big studio film. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking at now yet. So new line was acquired in 1996 by Warner brothers. So they were like, I think technically an independent studio at the time so this was an indie movie i guess so a huge success but i i just like i just could not see like i know this is the this is the wrong first one to go to but can you imagine disney making a movie like this like absolutely <laughs> not like Disney would never make a movie like this even under the like i don't even think they do it under the 20th century fox banner that they have mm-hmm. now or i should say just 20th century banner they have i mean they don't do r-rated movies unless it's under that anyway Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Or, or under like, yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, that's that's the thing. Right? I, I just don't think I mean, look, 30 million is not a lot, but I don't think this movie could be made for 30 million today. Um, But like, I, I just don't see a, a big studio pumping, say, let's just say double it. 
or well, let's just say 100 million. I think this movie could be made for 100 million today. Like I cannot see a studio pumping 100 million, double it for the marketing budget, like 200 million behind a movie like this because they wouldn't get the return. I just don't think that an R-rated movie like this would get the return. Yeah, I, I think I, I mainly agree with what you're saying. I think there's one name maybe that I would throw out there as a counterpoint, and that's Netflix. Like I could see Netflix yep. giving something like this. I, I think that might be the one avenue because yep. they are, you know, they're obviously taking a lot of chances with like the the money that they're allocating films. We saw this with the Russo brothers film that they're gonna be making. They're giving it 200 million. Um, but also I think like the this film in particular has like that sort of true crime aspect uh, to it that I think Netflix like has the the market cornered on a little bit, right? They, they uh, you know, are, are very known for their true crime stuff. And so I think they could capture that same sort of audience with a film like this. Um, that is a similar sort of like meticulous detective story. And yes, some of those things probably aren't as, as grisly as, as this maybe, but I could see them giving, you know, a, a pretty hefty budget to, um, you know, uh, some sort of auteur, auteur filmmaker maybe to to do this on Netflix. Now, would it be as successful, right? Like, I think that is the, the main question. Success for I, Netflix is something completely different, though. Yeah, that that, it's hard, that it's hard for us to think about in a traditional sense. I think it but no, have, like, check, 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 check news. Hmm, who is Netflix working with a lot right now over the last five or six years? Huh, is that David Fincher's name that I see on there yeah. with House of Cards and Mindhunter and Mank? Oh, yeah, Mindhunter, a show literally about yeah. like the uh, first investigations into serial killings. So, like, yeah, um, yeah, that, I think that is evidence right there. And I mean, people yeah. seem to, to like that show, but yeah, I don't know that we will ever see a movie like this again that that does as well as it does like in terms of like margins like again this is we're talking like 500 million close to in today's standards and i don't think anyone other it's than like 60 nolan, million in budget if you do today's standards too so yeah. you have to double the budget too but i don't think anyone other than nolan can do that really with an original film and nolan is not going to be making this type of a film really like not at this point yeah. in his career maybe earlier like with you know with a memento which i think is a pretty disturbing film as well yeah. but and, and um, even with this like i don't think fincher could make a movie like this and be no, this successful, no. successful again because fincher is not really i mean you're talking about a, a filmmaker like an auteur filmmaker needed to do this like Fincher's not an auteur. Like he's just not. Like he makes mm -hmm. like he makes studio movies that people yeah. like want to go see. He's like Sam Mendes, like that. Like he's not an auteur. Certainly they he's like done great things that I mean, I'm excited to go see when they come out, right? But it, he's not like a Nolan, he's not a Tarantino. And you almost need some a director with a personality like those guys in order to get that, especially if you're not gonna have established stars. Right, because I mean, obviously, if you put Brad Pitt in the in a movie like this today, like he, he can carry a movie by himself. It, yeah. He doesn't need help. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's really interesting. I know before we do switch topics, I, I want to talk more about, well, at least briefly, about Gwyneth Paltrow because I think we're we're skirting over here, guys, because we didn't give Nolan a free pass on his on his women, and I don't think we should give Fincher a free pass either. Like this is like not a good female character, right, guys? Or is that just me? I mean, I think that she uh, I, it's an interesting point, but I like I think that kind of like I was saying earlier, she is set up for this one purpose of being sort of the the beacon of hope yeah, and male hope light in, in the movie. Yeah, no, I mean, and that that's fair. But um, and so I don't know that she has like a huge purpose in the film. Like I, I would almost compare this if we're going to go back to Nolan, I would almost compare this to like a 
the Natalie character from uh, from Memento in terms of like her role. Like I, I feel like she has a very specific purpose. Is that Carrie that she, Moss's character? Yeah, that she is set up to do. And yes, it's probably not like, you know, this movie is not going to pass the Bechdel test and it's not like, uh, you know, a, a super feminist film or anything like that. Um, but I also don't think it's as problematic maybe as like the prestige or, um, you know, the maybe even like Batman Begins, the way that the female characters are set up in that film. Like, I think there is at least a purpose for her being in the movie. It's not just like a romantic subplot or she's not just there so she can be killed. But, off. but she's that, a plot device. Yes, she is. She is literally only there to be killed off. She 100 percent is only there to be killed off. Yeah, I'm with Scott Shelton on this one. Yeah, she I mean, is, she's very much just a plot. She's device. a plot device. Yeah, yeah, and maybe so. Uh, I think that that's a valid point to bring up. I don't know. I, I think there is still something there in that idea that she is the the hope. Um, yeah, male hope, sure. But uh, I, I think there's a little something more there. Maybe I'm forgiving it because it's Fincher. Like maybe I'll forgave it because it's uh, it was Nolan. But um, yeah. I, fair and i and i think that's something that that we should revisit although i will think i do think we're going to see some interesting portrayals of, of female characters in uh movies like girl with the dragon tattoo and and gone girl uh can't you know, wait for girl with dragon forward. tattoo guys um i mean that yeah. that move that i mean that is like frontline feminist literature basically girl with the dragon tattoo so honestly <laughs> uh Spoiler, you know, some spoilers for our future episodes there. Some, some things to look forward to. But uh, I'll, have pl- I'll have plenty to say about Gone Girl when we talk about female I'm, characters. I'm sure you will. Uh, I look forward to our four-hour episode on that. But um, <laughs> with that, I think we can move into the wrap-up for seven. Uh, favorite scene or moment from this film, Jay? Um, we haven't touched on this one, but I think, and I don't know if I'm using the term jump scare correctly uh, here, but... The the jump scare when did you jump uh, when you were scared? The when they are walking in to find uh, the victim of sloth, uh, you know, with the air fractures all around and his decomposing body. I think that is probably one of the most like earned and like like I don't know awesome jump scares because like again like there's right there's just no reason to see this coming. Like this guy is a thousand percent dead, and I appreciated it so much the second time around because. You know, like knowing that he was like I, the first time, you know, I was like super surprised and like taken aback. And the second time, like I almost laughed almost because, you know, it's so gruesome as hell and, you know, really upsetting. But, you know, there's it was that sense of just like, you know, like there's no way this guy's alive. And then, he, you know, mm-hmm. like you got what you deserve. Surprise. Like I, I thought that was a good. Scene, yeah. it, it was, it was a, you know, like a, a minor moment. But like and, you know, it, it might have been my favorite. Mo- it was my favorite moment, I guess. That's why I'm talking about it. It's my favorite moment. He chewed uh, through his tongue months ago. Don't worry about it. That was crazy. Scott, uh, how about you? Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of really interesting moments at the very least. I, I do like the chase scene just because it it has its, you know, it, it's different than everything else in the film. I think there's also some some really nice moments. Uh, so there's some like lighter moments, like funny moments with uh, talking about, you were talking about these books earlier, Scott, that, that uh, Morgan Freeman's character trying to get Brad Pitt to read and i i love when the police officer delivers the cliff notes <laughs> to him in his car that's a really funny scene uh so so so, so, so some, something in there uh overall i can tell you it's not not the lust kill scene that's not my favorite yeah uh f- fair to say but uh yeah i've given mine away i think it's that scene between uh morgan freeman and and gwyneth paltrow uh like i think that 
if there's a case to be made maybe for for Paltrow's character, maybe in this scene and the fact that, uh, again, it is she's kind of being used as just a motivating force for um, Morgan Freeman. I mean, she's Morgan just a device for Morgan Freeman here too, yeah. Yeah, in a way, I think. But um, I still really like the scene and the fact that, you know, Freeman has to confront sort of his past demons about, you know, giving up a, a child. And, you know, we wonder... How would how would that have uh, you know caused him to view to view the world differently, um, and maybe sort of gives him a new lease to try and protect Mills as much as he can, um, and obviously he's not able to do that in the end, which you know again is is a real gut punch. But um, I think that that is an effective scene and, and you know the apex of Morgan Freeman's performance in the movie. But um, all right, let's put a score on it, Jay. Uh, what would you give uh, this first movie in the Fincher countdown out of ten on the Jay ad adjusted scale? Really, really good movie. Um, let's go with an 8.7. Just pulling it out of his butt. Uh, <laughs> Scott, how about you? 8.2. Good film. 9.5 for me. I, I really enjoy this film. Um, I think that, you know, again, the only, only problem I really have is um, at the end of the movie, that heavy-handed sequence with with Spacey's character, I think you know could could have easily been a ten if they had had a little more subtlety there at the end. But I do think that that does hamper the film. Maybe even makes it drag a little bit there in that last uh, section. Um, so I think we're starting high, but I think the best is yet to come. Uh, no 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 spoilers uh, there, but uh, there are definitely some films, a, a couple of films, which I enjoy a little bit more in this countdown, but I think this, uh, I mean, you only said Zodiac is one of your favorite movies of all time. Already. I did. Yeah. So you would, think, there. you would think that that would be one of them, wouldn't you? But who knows? Maybe I will just hate it this time when we rewatch it. Maybe I'll be like this. Film Maybe you'll be like, man, this film is like an hour and a half too long. Yeah, it is a long film, but, uh, we will cross that bridge when we get there. Um, but that'll do it for this first uh, edition of the Fincher Countdown. Um, we hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. You can support us over there. Even if you can't, don't forget to rate, review, like, subscribe, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. Check out all the stuff that we have over there on the Some Like It Scott feed, in addition to just the Countdown series. And we hope you will be back for our next episode. Uh, until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.